Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us for the CME snack titled Biomarkers and Real World Practice. Where do they fit with Alzheimer's disease? This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. I'm Dr. Anna Burke. I'm the director of the Alzheimer's and Memory Disorders Division at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Fanny Alahi. Hi, I'm Dr. Fanny Alahi. I'm a physician scientist at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Um, I see patients in clinics suffering from Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. And my lab focuses on development of biomarkers for making diagnoses uh, more precise, uh, identification of novel therapeutic targets uh, to treat neurodegenerative diseases. It's a pleasure to join. So Dr. Alahi, we have a lot of new medications that are coming on the market right now, either new therapeutic agents against Alzheimer's disease that have recently been approved, but also a, a number of agents that are currently close to FDA approval, certainly showing a great deal of promise. These include the monoclonal antibodies against Alzheimer's disease. There are a lot of questions that we get from our patients about the differences amongst these medications. They read about medications like lecanemab or denanemab and wonder, what are these medications? How do they work? How are they different? So can you give us a brief overview? Absolutely. So what all these medications have in common is that they are going after amyloid. One of the proteinopathies contributing to Alzheimer's disease, and one of the main biomarkers by which we have detected Alzheimer's disease. So to understand how they differ, we need to talk a little bit about the cascade of amyloid accumulation in the brain. Amyloid starts with the expression of the protein APP. This protein is expressed on a lot of different cells, including neurons. It gets cut cleaved, and it produces different proteins, uh, such as amyloid beta-142, it just means 42 amino acids, and 140. Initially, we call them monomers, so they're single proteins, and then they form oligomers. Oligomers then go on to form protofibrils, then fibrils, and ultimately, they end up in these balls, aggregated together into plaques. What our imaging measures are, are going after, the amyloid PET scans, uh, is basically ligands, radioactive ligands that are detecting these plaques. What we measure in CSF are, are not plaques. These are the soluble fragments in cerebral spinal fluid. I'll start with lecanemab because it's targeting the earliest abnormality in this cascade. The monoclonal antibody is targeting protofibrils. Then aducanumab, which we're not going to talk about very much today, is going after the fibrils. And finally, denanumab, which is not yet FDA approved, is going after the plaques. So their actual target within the cascade is different, but ultimately they're all going after amyloid. Does this seem to affect their efficacy? You know, the data, the clinical data so far would suggest, and I'm thinking about lecanemab and denanemab, both, they both have efficacy, but these may differ as we get more precise, as we go earlier in less symptomatic patients. And I think that data um, is going to come out in the next few years. 
from what we're seeing, both of these agents seem to be quite effective in reducing amyloid burden in the brain. And certainly that translates to some benefits on cognitive measures and on functional measures. Now, the measures that were used in both the trials of lecanemab and denanemab were a bit different. However, both of them did indicate that there does seem to be a benefit on cognition and function. It's important to note that these medications don't stop the disease process, right? And certainly don't reverse the damage that's occurring to the brain or or, uh, improve cognition or function significantly, but they may be a useful tool to help slow the rate of progression of symptoms. Yeah, I think that's a very important concept. The fact that we are slowing down decline, that decline actually continues. And when you look at the two lines of individuals receiving placebo versus drug, they're both declining, but at different rates. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, the difference between these two lines is considered by the community significant enough. And I think one question stands, is it significant enough for that one individual because these trials are done on a group level? Right. And the other question is, what is the appropriate patient, right? Who should uh, we be targeting as the right population of patients? That's a really critical question. Um, And I think I want to go back to the fact that trials are done on hundreds, thousands of individuals, and then we're going to end up one. And if you look at individual level, some people may have a bigger effect size and some people may have no effect size and some people may actually get worse. So when we go from doing research to being a clinician and thinking about that one individual, there are certain characteristics that we may want to think about that increases the chance of benefit and decreases the chance of side effects. As it always is the case, when there is a new disease-modifying treatment, the criteria are pretty coarse. And so the criteria for, for selection of the ideal patient are that They're not too far along the disease process. Going back to what you mentioned, this is not restoring function. It is just preventing a faster decline. So if there has been loss of brain cells in the brain too much, if the pathology is now really no longer uh, responsive to amyloid in the brain and there is tau all over the brain and other kinds of complications, Uh, we don't think the patient would benefit very much. And we think that at that point, the side effect, ARIA E and ARIA H, may outweigh the benefit, the small to no benefit that the patient gets. So in the trials, this was done based on cognitive scoring system, the mini mental status exam um, score between 20 to 28. We don't think this is a perfect scoring system, level of education and familiarity with some of the components could be affecting an individual score. Some deficits due to Alzheimer's disease, such as language impairment uh, or visuospatial impairment could be affecting the score, but you need to start somewhere. So really the point is that MCI, mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia. So really the early stages of dementia was looked at in the trial. So 
As we're thinking about starting these patients on monoclonal antibodies, there does need to be some type of a confirmation of amyloid status, correct? And we can do that in various ways. So can you run us through some of the technologies that are available currently? And then maybe talk about the neuroimaging that we perform during the course of the trial. I think one of the reasons why these trials were successful is that amyloid was taken into account. So previously we were going for clinical probable diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And we know that's not good enough because the phenotype of Alzheimer's disease, the clinical syndrome of Alzheimer's disease could be caused by a lot of different causes. So a biomarker adjunct to the diagnosis is going to be very important. Now, there are two FDA-approved modalities to diagnose brain amyloidosis. One is the cerebral spinal fluid cutoff levels that we have, and they were the first that we have, and we've continued to do them. That entails doing a lumbar puncture. Not everyone can undergo a lumbar puncture. And now with the advent of these uh, anti-amyloid therapeutics, insurance is going to reimburse one PET scan at the start. So individuals can undergo imaging, a PET scan specifically using ligands that detect amyloid plaque deposition in the brain. And that ensures that regardless of what else is going on in the brain, there is amyloid accumulation. And therefore that patient could potentially benefit from anti-amyloid therapeutics. So These two modalities, CSF levels of amyloid and actually tau and PET scan for detection of amyloid in the brain will ensure that there is brain amyloidosis. So we're certainly looking at the mild stages of illness where the benefits will certainly outweigh any potential risks, right? But we do know that there are other factors that can increase the risk of serious side effects from these treatments. So as you're screening patients in your clinical practice to see if they may be appropriate and if that risk-benefit ratio is appropriate. What do you look at? What does your standard workup look like? So another aspect of the workup were exclusion criteria. So who would it be unsafe to treat? And that's maybe one of the most important criteria to take into account because we don't want to do any harm. And really the effect sizes don't warrant taking that much risk. We should talk about cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So cerebral amyloid angiopathy is amyloid accumulation around the blood vessels of the brain. These are the small blood vessels of the brain, and it causes fragility of the blood vessels. Ultimately, it leads to bleeding and edema, which means accumulation of fluid in that region. This can happen spontaneously in individuals that have Alzheimer's disease, but the risk of bleeding and edema is increased by the administration naturally of an antibody that increases inflammation because the mechanism by which the amyloid is getting cleared is through microglial activation and phagocytosis of the labeled amyloid in the brain. So this increased inflammation that is helping the brain clear the amyloid is also a risk. And What's most worrisome is the hemorrhagic form of aria. 
One of the diagnostic criteria for inclusion into treatment with these monoclonal antibodies is doing a brain scan within the past year prior to infusion, right? And certainly there would be findings on that imaging that could potentially exclude patients from treatment. So on the MRI bleeding, we talk about microhemorrhages. These are tiny little foci of hemorrhage, four or more or a larger hemorrhage, a macro hemorrhage, just one, or superficial sclerosis. All of these are basically uh, signs of cerebral amyloid angiopathy historically. Before we even had treatments, they suggest that there's significant amount of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. I think it's worth noting that even in absence of these, there's still risk, right? Because we know that anyone who has Alzheimer's disease has cerebral amyloid angiopathy. It's just about quantification of the fragility of the blood vessels. So this is one, it's signs of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, significant cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And other considerations that are really important are individuals who are on uh, blood thinners. These are not antiplatelets. These are Coumadin and the NOAX, basically. Anyone say with atrial fibrillation or clotting disorder that is on a blood thinner on an anti-coagulation medication would be at higher risk of significantly bleeding as a result of, say, an ARIA-H, an uh, hemorrhagic form of ARIA. Also, one of the challenges of uh, these treatments, we have had patients who have come into emergency rooms with stroke-like symptoms, right, and have received TPA while there, the doctors not knowing that they were on a monoclonal antibody treatment. So a lot of discussion amongst physicians in our community about how to protect patients in those situations. So that's yet another consideration. You could see someone who is not on an anticoagulation treatment, but is at really high risk of having lacunar strokes. This is an absolute contraindication. Being on an anti-amyloid treatment and receiving TPA, I think, is going to be something that no one is going to do. So you would be basically withholding TPA from a patient who could benefit from receiving TPA for their other chronic disease process that may end up with a stroke. These considerations, I think, are things that where the conversation is starting and we are talking about this as a community. I know that in our health system, we want to give bracelets to patients so that this never happens because the cases of death, as you mentioned, are uh, individuals who uh, were in trial receiving drug and got TPA. There's not an insignificant overlap between stroke risk, significant small vessel disease, and Alzheimer's disease. So this, this is really not a trivial aspect of considering infusion versus not. Now, another risk factor, I mean, obviously, as part of the workup, we do standard labs um, as, as part of any dementia workup. But as part of the workup specifically for monoclonal antibody treatment, uh, most of us are also doing genetic testing, checking for APOE4 status. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that affects risk yeah. of side effects? So individuals with APOE4 allele of the APOE genotype were not excluded from the lecanemab trial or the denanemab trial, but we know that they are at higher risk of having both ARIA-H and ARIA-E. I think not everyone is comfortable advising patients who carry this genotype to get drug, but I think that's a discussion to be had with the patient and their tolerance of risk 
uh, versus benefit uh, from the drug. We don't think their benefit is lesser than non-carriers. In fact, they may, if you take demographics, there are these subgroup analyses that I think are underpowered as it stands. And so we'll learn a lot more in the phase four or this phase of clinical administration of these drugs. But in some subgroups carrying the genotype may actually benefit even more from the drug. So this is the dilemma there. There are no guidelines for this, but I would say that personally as a clinician, I consider ApoE4 to be one of the risk factors for blood vessel disease. It's not just a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease through potentially lipid metabolism, et cetera. We know that there is blood brain barrier dysfunction in E4 carriers. And so if they're younger, I would be more secure. If they're older and have hypertension and have had, say, one lacunar stroke, then that makes me more uncomfortable. I think this is where the judgment of the clinician comes into play and a really frank, open discussion with the patient they're facing. So we discussed amyloid PET imaging, we discussed CSF studies, but there are new blood-based biomarkers focusing on both amyloid and tau that are becoming available. What are your thoughts about using these new blood-based biomarkers to screen for appropriateness for this treatment, as well as perhaps for effect towards the end of the treatment? Yeah. So I'm personally very excited about plasma biomarkers. I think we all are. They're non-invasive, they're cheap, and they are really fantastic screening tools for risk stratification, similar to how we screen for lipid problems, for heart disease and other end organ dysfunctions. I think that's where the role for plasma biomarkers will come into play. When you look at the data and you group individuals based on positive amyloid PET scan on imaging and negative amyloid PET scan on imaging, there's a huge amount of overlap when you look at blood levels of these biomarkers. And therefore, we don't yet have cutoffs that allow us to put people in buckets, which is what we need. The level of certainty with regards to a pathology needs to be really high when you're deciding to give a, a pretty um, intensive drug to an individual. So the jury's still out on whether we will be able to incorporate these plasma biomarkers in risk stratification for doing more uh, expensive diagnostic tests and or following therapeutic efficacy. So for instance, we talked about the fact that we don't have an endpoint for the infusion. Are we going to be able to incorporate the plasma biomarkers to see when things are upticking again? So there will be a role at this point, though. There isn't. The workup and, and the follow-ups don't actually uh, have uh, a place for plasma biomarkers. So I think at this point, probably the blood-based biomarkers may serve more as an initial screening for patients who will need further amyloid confirmation. Th those would be my thoughts. So for instance, in a primary care setting, the blood-based biomarkers at this point may serve a purpose where primary care physicians could quickly identify somebody who perhaps has amyloid pathology who will need additional CSF or amyloid PET confirmation before they would be deemed a candidate for monoclonal antibody therapy? If there's doubt, absolutely. If they really are unsure, low levels on some of these biomarkers are going to be helpful to risk stratifying for the further workup. Yeah. 
Would you infuse based on just a blood-based biomarker? Absolutely not. I think it goes back to that threshold. You know, disease is on a continuum. We all know it, but we are making a decision to give a drug that can have side effects and some benefits. So no, you need to be much more sure than what the plasma biomarkers would tell you. But that currently would not be something that we would be able to track over the course of their treatment. So unfortunately, and that doesn't necessarily make sense to me and and, and to you, I would imagine, and and other uh, practitioners, is that there's only one initial PET scan. And and then we actually don't even know when we're going to stop infusing, right? So the trials were done at 18 months and then infusion continued. And we see that at 20, 24 months, there's effect and maybe even an increase in effect. But when do you stop? Because the brain is cleared of amyloid and there's a small uptick, right? So when you stop infusing, amyloid could potentially reaccumulate. We don't have a stopping point. For denanumab, there is, but not for lecanumab. And these are things that are going to be worked up. And then, of course, close monitoring is going to be necessary of any patient who is on this therapy. So we know not only is that going to be clinical monitoring for signs and symptoms of possible aria, um, which the majority of patients actually do not have any symptoms associated with aria. It's an incidental finding on neuroimaging. But regular neuroimaging is also necessary. So in your clinical practice, how do you monitor uh, these patients for safety? And I realized that we we never said what ARIA stands for. It's amyloid-related imaging abnormality. So basically, this this can be an incidental imaging finding. Uh, What we plan to do is to monitor them both clinically, so very open, you set timelines of check-in with the patient, really clear instructions as to who to contact how to contact urgently if they have signs or symptoms, which can be headache, confusion, episodic deficit symptoms, like stroke-like symptoms they can even have, any kind of change from their baseline that is notable and not explained by anything else, like having the flu or being sick with COVID or anything else. We would get notified and we would bring them in and do imaging. The good thing about ARIA is that it's detectable on imaging. So I don't know that everyone is going to go exactly by the guidelines or do more frequent MRI uh, scanning. After the fifth infusion, seventh infusion, and 14th infusion, there will be brain MRI scans. This is specifically to check for ARIA. After that, there are very clear guidelines of holding drug, watching versus if it's significant enough and worrisome, and if it's a hemorrhagic form, then administering steroids that can basically bring down the inflammation. So currently, lecanemab is the only fully FDA-approved treatment, a fully FDA-approved monoclonal antibody against Alzheimer's, but certainly there are other medications that are being researched, and our patients are, are hearing about medications like denanemab, and one of the questions that they ask is, well, how do I know which one is the right one for me? As these additional agents become available, how would you decide what medication to choose? I think it's fantastic that we're going to have choice. 
But exactly how are we going to choose, I think, depends on a lot more information that we need. So my gut feeling, and I think this is uh, based on the fact that they have different targets. And if you look at the subgroups, there may be hints of differences for, say, women versus men at different ages. I think we're moving to hopefully one day having choice to be more precise with regards to what kind of anti-amyloid, if we give anti-amyloid, what kind of anti-amyloid we're going to give. At this point in time, it's going to be whichever is available, whichever is easiest, because they look very similar. But I think it's because we have not had the power to do those subgroup analyses. And once we do look at those subgroups, I think we're going to have more elements that help us choose which to give to whom or which to offer to which patient. So in the future, it won't be a question of which one is better. It will be more of a question, which one is better if. I think so. I think so. Maybe one becomes very clearly superior to the other. And again, I don't think we have that data yet to make that call at this point. I do think administration may guide a lot of the decisions, but at this point, all we have is infusion. So we currently have mainly infusion therapies that are available and being developed, but we know that there's a sub-Q formulation of lecanemab that has been researched, and there was actually an interesting presentation regarding the results of those studies at the most recent CTAD meeting. Can you talk a little bit about the sub-Q results? I think it's very exciting. Infusion has a, a lot of problems. It's difficult. And so I think the results that were shared were very promising. The levels stayed pretty steady in, in blood. And at least early results of efficacy seem to be quite efficacious. Now, with regards to the side effects, I would say more or less, it's similar. So at this point, I'm very encouraged by the results that were shared. And obviously, I think a subcute formulation would have great advantages. It would certainly be much easier for patients to administer yeah. that and increase access, right, Absolutely. without the need for infusion suites. As we're looking as, at these therapies as possible treatments for different populations, are there any considerations for re- race, ethnicity, gender that you would consider? Tremendously. Our studies, unfortunately, are severely underpowered to ask the questions of whether there are differences in effect based on race, ethnicity, the interaction of the two with uh, sex and gender. But what we do know, again, from very few studies, not enough, is that amyloid may not be as an important a contributor to brain dysfunction and degeneration across races and ethnicities. And specifically in African-Americans, this has been looked at in small studies. I think we need more studies. It just may not contribute to the models that predict cognitive decline. And so that's a big problem. Uh, It's a big problem of, I think we're more aware of it now, but the fact that we went after amyloid for decades uh, without ever ensuring that there is appropriate representation of society, and especially individuals at higher risk. I would say that African-Americans have a higher risk of dementia. Women have a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. So underrepresentation of high-risk groups is a problem. And, and I hope that in the years to come, we are going to expand our knowledge base and be able to help everyone equally. 
We've had a great discussion today. Let's bring it all together with our SMART goals to apply in practice. After today, we hope you all will educate patients with or at risk with Alzheimer's disease on new and emerging anti-amyloid therapies, including relevant safety and efficacy data, as well as potential benefits and harms of these agents in early Alzheimer's disease. You'll be able to inform patient selection for the anti-amyloid therapies with appropriate use criteria, translation of clinical data, and evidence-based best practices, and ensure all patients receiving anti-amyloid therapies are supported with clinician teams, medical resources, and social support services adequate to adhere to recommended protocols. If you would like additional free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients, please visit the Alzheimer's Dementia Hub. To receive credit for these activities, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Thank you for joining us again and take care.